All right, I could ask you, I'd ask you, please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. This morning we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 16. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 16. I therefore, a prisoner of the, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who has descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may not, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has promised that he would build his kingdom, that he would build his church, and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you sent your Holy Spirit in order to give gifts to the church for the building up of the body in love. We pray through the work of your Spirit, that we would understand the gifts of the Spirit. More importantly, we pray that you would help us to understand and to walk in the fruit of the Spirit, that we would be growing in our spiritual lives, and that so we would be mature in the way that we use the gifts that you have given us, that we would see them not as our gifts, but as your gifts to your church. We pray that you would help us all to be disciplined and diligent in the in the, the practice of these gifts so that you would use the gifts that you've given this particular body for the advance of your kingdom and for the glory of your name. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we heard a story about a generous father who gave gifts to his children for them to work together to build up the family home. But we saw that by their ignorance and incompetence and selfishness and laziness, that the job wasn't getting done. Well, this morning I want to tell you about another generous father who gives good gifts to his children. So let's see how this family fares. 
The father sits down with his three children, two boys and a girl. He begins with the younger son and says, Son, I love you very much and I want to give you this. And he hands him a beautifully wrapped package. It's about five feet long and skinny. What could it possibly be, he wondered. Well, there's a note attached to it with these words. Father, this is from your father. I love you very much and I want to give this to you. Work and you will through strength, sweat, and skill, your mission fulfill. And on the back of this note is a map of their backyard and a, a spot in the middle with an X. And so he eagerly rips open the package and finds a shovel. And so he rushes out back, finds the spot, and starts digging. It's, it's a hot day, and, and sweat is beginning to pour down his face, but he doesn't mind because he's thinking of what's down in the bottom of that hole. But as the day wears on, he's, decided, he's beginning to feel decidedly unthankful as the hole gets deeper and deeper, and he's tempted to give up. But then suddenly, as he's digging, he hears a loud thunk. He said something. So he bends down and, and carefully scrapes away the dirt from the, from the top of a wooden trunk. So he wonders, is this a treasure chest? And so as he inspects it more closely, he sees that there is a name engraved on the top of the chest. But it isn't his name. It's actually his elder brother's name. And so discouraged, he climbs out of the hole, grumbling against his father. So now the elder brother jumps into the hole because it's his name on the chest. And, and so it's his, he looks carefully. He says, yes, that's indeed his name engraved there with the words, son, I love you very much and I want to give you this. And below there's another poem. Alone you strive, together you thrive to reach your objective. Now, I don't, that doesn't exactly rhyme as close as I could get, but... But, but he puzzles over these words for a moment, and, he, and he, he, then he, he says, well, I wonder what this means. So he, he, then he gets to work. And he, it's a heavy chest. So he, he works really hard. It's a deep hole. He works hard to drag the chest out of the hole. And finally, he gets the hole up onto or the, the, the chest up onto the, the lip of the hole. His body is weary, but his mind is giddy at the thought of what's inside. And so he attempts to, to open the chest but it's locked. There's a stout padlock on the side of it. He tries to pick the lock. doesn't work. He tries a crowbar. He tries an axe. He, he tries a blowtorch. There's absolutely nothing that he can do to open the chest. Now he's exasperated. He says, how can you do this to me, Father? Is this some kind of cruel joke? And saddened but steadfast, the father comes now to the youngest, his daughter. His brother's aren't too happy with their gifts, but she's still hopeful. So her father says, daughter, I love you very much, and I want to give you this. So he hands her an envelope. It's small, and it doesn't weigh very much, but she can tell that there's something inside. And so she tears open the envelope and finds another poem. Heart and mind, seek and then find how gifts are defined. Like her brother, she momentarily ponders the meaning of the words, but, but then she, she catches a, a sight of, of a glint of something, something sparkling in, in the envelope. It's a light change. She thinks, is this, 
is this an expensive necklace? But as she pulls it out, she realizes it's just made of brass. Hardly worth anything. But then she gets to the end of the chain. And there's a key. The reality of the situation begins to dawn on the three. And then together, they run as fast as they can over to the chest and stick the key in the lock and turn it. Click. It opens. And so they crowd in and and slowly open the lid of the chest. And their faces light up simultaneously. Inside is the greatest treasure they've ever seen. Gold and diamonds, rubies and pearls. And so together they embrace their father with tears of repentance and thanksgiving as they wonder how they ever could have doubted their father's love or wisdom. And so together they decide to spend the treasure, not on themselves, but to help those who are less fortunate than themselves. Well, just so you know where we're going to be going in the coming weeks, as we think about the spiritual gifts, when I I look at the scriptures, I count 19 spiritual gifts in the New Testament. The first five gifts, the the foundational gifts, are are listed in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And we're going to look at each one of them individually next week. But as I said last week, you need to understand what the gifts are for but you could, before you can understand what they are, let alone understand what your gifts are. Again, the gifts are not your gifts. They're God's gifts to the church for the building up of the body. The, the gifts cannot be used selfishly and they cannot be used in isolation. Like the piece of the puzzle that we saw with the kids, it it, it all needs to come together for the church to do what the church is called to do. The, The pieces of the puzzle, the gifts work together with each other for the glory of God. Now you may have heard the 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 shout of the three musketeers, all for one and one for all. It's it's the the motto of the three musketeers. And the full quote is, all for one, one for all, united we stand, divided we fall. And that really would make a good motto for the church, wouldn't it? All for one, one for all, united we stand, divided we fall. That's really the message of Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 16. There are passages for this morning as we continue to consider the spiritual gifts. Let's begin down in, in verses 4 to 7. We'll come back up to look at one to three, one to three in a moment. Ephesians four, four to seven. Let me read it again. And as I read it, make note of how many times the Apostle Paul uses, repeats the word "one." We've talked about this several times. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And when you see something that is repeated like that in Scripture, the the Holy Spirit-inspired human author is is drawing your attention to something that is especially important. It's like an exclamation mark that's that's meant as a beacon to to show you, okay, this is something important you need to understand. Paul here uses the word one eight times in these three verses. And and what what he's doing here is he's, he's listing the sources of our unity. He's saying that we are all one because of these ones. We're all one because of the fact that God is one, because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The church is one because God is one. So it really is, it's, it's 
one for all, all for one. So it's kind of like turning it around from what, what, the, what the three musketeers say. One God for all of his people. And all of God's people for the one true God. Right? So it's, it's one for all, the one God for all the church, and then all the church for the one God. And so when we see this, we understand that your salvation, that, that all of your salvation is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But now as the recipients of God's saving grace, the church works together for God and for his glory. The unity of the church is a reflection of the unity of the Trinity. We are one because God is one. But how does that happen? How does God's unity become our unity? How does the unity of the Godhead produce the unity of the church? Well, now let's back, back, jump back up to verses 1 to 3. Again, I'll read it for you. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul, who wrote this, this letter to the Ephesian church when he was in prison, saying that it, the, the, the theological foundations that he talked about in, in, in chapters 1 to 3, and we, we did a sermon series on this a number of years ago. I would encourage you, to, to as you can, to look back at, at some of these sermons. But, but the theological underpinnings, the foundations are in chapters 1 to 3, and then Paul says, because of those theological foundations, therefore I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And so the second half of Ephesians goes into the practical application that follows from the theological foundations. Now, if you, if you think about the, this, this command to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, and if you think, oh yeah, I got this, you really don't understand the worth of your calling. Th- think about how you once walked. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, just if you're, if you're with me, you can flip back a couple of chapters. A couple of chapters. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 describes all of us prior to our salvation. Dead in our trespasses and sins, followers of Satan, by nature the children of wrath. Now, for some of us here, it might have been a very long time since you were those things. Praise God for that. But don't forget, you did not turn yourself around. right? You didn't pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. God turned you around by his effectual call. He did the work in your heart. Don't ever forget what you would be apart from God's work of grace in your life. Chapter 2, 4 to 6 describes it. But God, being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in Ephesians 1, 18, Paul prays that the church would know the hope of their calling having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the the same. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Consider your calling. What is your calling and what does it look like to walk in a manner of it? Again, that's the focus of the entire second half of Ephesians. 
But Paul starts out with the four virtues in, in verse 2. Humility, gentleness, patience, and loving forbearance. Now, each of these, these four virtues is, is necessary if you are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice it is, it is the unity of the Spirit. Right? It's the unity that, that we have from the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not the unity that, that we have as, particularly as the, the people of Providence Baptist Church. We're, we're not just gathered together because we, we all fit a particular demographic. Right? We're, we're not just, just here because we like each other. We're here because of the, the call of the Spirit, because of the work of the Spirit. And the, so the unity that we are to maintain is not our unity, it's the Spirit's unity that works in us. So then, if, if you want to, to maintain this unity, these, these four attributes or four virtues are essential if you're going to function as in the body as God intends you to function in the body. And these are really, so these are really four characteristics of, of a spiritual person. Let's just quickly go through them. Humility. Humility is, is really the attitude of considering others above yourself. And it's, it's not, there can be a false humility, but this is a real humility. This is, this is seeing yourself as being at the bottom and, and putting others above you. And really most of the problems in the church come from a lack of humility. Because we feel like we, we deserve better treatment. We feel like we deserve respect. It's pride. And pride destroys unity. Think about Ephesians or Philippians 2, 3 and following. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then in verses 5 to 8, Paul tells us to have the mind of Christ who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Christ is the epitome of humility. Isaiah 66, 2. But it is the, this is the one to whom I will look, one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The, the, the humility of Christ was, was unique in all the world. And, and we, though, fall, we fall infinitely short of that. We, we look to the humility of Christ and we say, by the power of the Spirit, we, we seek to emulate that and to grow in that. So that's humility. Gentleness, or, or really, more accurately, the, the word is meekness. Meekness. Now, in our culture, we often confuse meekness with weakness. But meekness is actually the opposite of weakness. Meekness is controlled strength. Meekness is, is Bruce Lee standing there with, with people taunting him and mocking him. And he could beat up eight of them at one time, but taking it. That's meekness. It's like a, a well-trained war horse Powerful, but it's restrained power. It's disciplined power. But our culture exalts the opposite, right? Our church exalts, not our church, I hope, but their church in general really follows suit after the culture. The church exalts those that have charisma in the more modern sense of the word. They're really engaging personalities and they're 
they're big and strong, and, and, and these are the people that, that the church pushes to the front for leadership. But really, it should, it's not that you can't be big and strong to be a pastor, at least not big, I'm big, but not strong. But, but it's really about being humble and gentle. It's, it's controlled strength. That's, that's, what, that's what is necessary in the church. And again, this quality is exemplified in Christ. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. This is vital. Vital for unity. Okay, so we've seen, we've seen humility and then gentleness or, or meekness. Now patience. Patience in this sense here is, is slow to avenge a wrong or to, to retaliate when hurt by another. Patience is the ability to respond to the ill treatment of others without losing your temper or being irritated. So it's, it's really the, it's, it's very similar in some respects to, uh, to meekness. But what's, you see, when we get impatient with somebody, what we're really saying is that, is that God is not doing a good job. Right? We're saying that, that I could do a better job than God in this. Really, that's ultimately what we're saying. You know, I've often said that I didn't know how selfish I was until I got married. I didn't know how impatient I was until I had kids. I said to Jeannie the other day, I think that, that God has, has given me children to, to help me to grow specifically, and for many reasons, I'm sure, but, but to grow in, in patience and to see some of ways people have had to be patient with me. You see, if, if, we, if, we're, if we're wanting to say, I want that person to grow at the, at the rate that I expect them to grow, to mature, at the rate I expect them to mature. We're really acting like we're sovereign and God isn't. We're trusting the people into God's care and the Lord's timing. So just think about how Jesus has been patient with you and is being patient with you. And finally, loving forbearance. So this is long-suffering. This is bearing with one another's weaknesses. This is not ceasing to love your, your neighbor or your friend your family because of those faults in them which perhaps offend you or displease you. In one of my classes, Stuart Scott described this as, as putting up with one another's weirdness. Putting up with one another's weirdness. And that's certainly part of it. But, but I think it's really not just putting up with it. It's bearing with them in love. So it's, it's forbearance in love. Because you love that person, their quirks and their weaknesses don't bother you. Or, or when they, they do, that you repent and then you remind yourself of your love for them and how Jesus is forbearing with your quirks and your weaknesses. And again, this is a vital component of unity. So as you think of these, these four things, of, of humility and gentleness and patience and, and loving forbearance, Notice how they overlap with the fruit of the Spirit. I think these are really aspects of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Now, a, a number of our, our Pentecostal friends focus on their understanding of the gifts of the Spirit without having a proper understanding of the fruit of the Spirit. Right? If you are seeking to focus on the gifts of the Spirit without first seeking to develop and to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, you're, you're going to be off kilter. And, and even if you somehow, through God's, God's grace, have an accurate understanding of, of what the gifting is and what your gifting is, 
because of the lack of maturity in, in spiritual fruit, you're going to be imbalanced. And it's not, it's not going to be achieving the maximum effect for, for God's glory and for the building of the church. So let's not fall into the same error. Before you begin to explore spiritual gifting, prayerfully and carefully examine your life to look for the presence or absence of spiritual fruit. I really want to, to challenge you to ask somebody else in the church. Ask a couple of people in the church, not a, not a fanboy or fangirl, but, but somebody who is, going, who is going to speak the truth to you in love and say, Do, is my life characterized by these things? Is my life characterized by humility and gentleness and patience and loving forbearance? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a little scared. I actually get, like, wow, like, I'm a little scared of what the answer could be at times. But I really would, would encourage you to, to, to do that, to, to, again, to take somebody who, who knows you well and who's not just going to cater to you, but who's going to actually lovingly tell you the truth about areas that you need to grow in this. And then take, take the time, as, as, these, as you recognize, you begin to grow in the recognition of these things, pray, ask God to help you to see and to help you to grow. Confident in the fact that the Holy Spirit will cause you to grow. Now, now when we talk about, about our salvation, we understand that, that God has done everything that is required for our salvation. Christianity is the only religion in which the only religion in the whole world where everything has been done for you. You can do nothing to add or subtract from the great salvation that you've received in Jesus Christ. That's your salvation. But with your sanctification, you also have responsibility. God, God works and you work. Right? We're, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's true. But we also have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have to actually, we have to actually seek to grow in these things. We actually have to seek to, to, to be developing the, the, these, these traits and, and seeking the Spirit to help us to grow. We need to study God's Word to say, what does, this, what does the Word say about these things? And, and how does my life fall short? And, and Lord, please help me to grow and, and ask others to hold you accountable for growth in these things. You know, I think, I think at, at times, a number of us, all of us to some degree, are, are not as sanctified as we should be simply because of laziness. But if you, as you examine, maybe you're aware of things even now where you fall short on these things. I am in my life. You can be confident. As I said a moment ago, you're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, predestined for sanctification. The Holy Spirit has promised that his, Christ has promised to send a spirit to work in you to, to cause you to grow in Christ-likeness. You know, I've used this illustration before, but my pastor in Louisville had a, used to have a peach tree in his yard. And he said if, if he was to go out there you know, you know, in early June and, and would see these, these little nubs of, of peaches on the tree, right? these little nubby things that you couldn't, you couldn't eat, it'd be so sour and bitter, it'd make you sick. But he wouldn't just say, oh, you stupid tree, and cut it down. Right? Because if the fruit is there, it's not mature, it's not fully ripe, but it's there. But then you come back in the end of July and, and see these big, juicy peaches that are there on the tree. And that's what our, where our life is there. We have the fruit. It's, it's not, 
if it's not fully mature, and none of us is really fully mature, we can take comfort and hope that, that God is going to achieve that in us. He's going to actually cause the fruit to grow for his glory. But again, a life that is characterized by humility and gentleness and patience and loving forbearance is essential for the life and health of the church. The church needs to be maintained before the church can really begin to grow. Just think about it. It it would be foolish of us to knock out walls and plan a, a major addition to this auditorium while we're not really taking care of the building or the grounds. If the roof is leaking and the the lawn isn't mowed and the the garden is full of weeds and and none of the light bulbs have gotten changed, how could we begin to start a building project to expand the building? Now, I think most of us are in agreement that if the Lord was to add significantly to our number, we we would rather plant another church than to to knock out walls and expand this one. I think you get my point. The church needs to be maintained before it can maintain healthy growth. The church needs to be maintained before it can begin to maintain healthy growth. So this passage is is talking about church growth. So it has the, 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 the maintenance at the first part. Now it begins to talk about the growth. Well, the question then is, how does the church grow? How does the church grow? Well, first we need to ask what kind of growth is primarily in view here in Ephesians 4. Now, numerical growth is included because one of the the gifts that is given to the church is is those who are gifted in evangelism. But from the context, we'll see that the focus is more on spiritual growth. Paul's focus and ours should should be more on growth in depth rather than focus on breadth. Right? Focus on the depth. And God will take care of the breath. When the church is functioning as it should, and, and again, it does include evangelism, the Lord will add those who are being saved. Acts 2, 47. Then with that in mind, let's now look at verses 7 and 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So who gets the gifts? Each one of us. Each one of us get the gifts. Everyone, every Christian in the church has been given spiritual gifts for the building up of the church. And who gets the gifts? So rather, who gives the gifts? Christ. Christ gives the gifts. Here in verse 8, Paul is quoting uh, Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. The picture here is of a victorious king returning from battle and parading through the streets with the spoils of war. And these spoils of war, he's going to to disseminate, he's going to give out to his soldiers. This is a picture, again, this is the picture of Christ, the conquering king, and he is the one who gives gifts to his soldiers. That's you and me. So Paul now continues the metaphor in verses 9 and 10, saying, he ascended. But what does that mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens and he might fill all things. Now we know, we just, we just talked about this at the end of Luke, that, that Christ's ascension clearly refers to his ascension back to the Father's right hand after his resurrection. 
But what is his descent? Is it a, is the descent a, a description of the of the incarnation that Christ descended from heaven to earth, or is it a picture of of him descending into the grave, or does it mean he descended into hell, like many of the English translations of the Apostles' Creed state? Well, the Christian the scriptures never do say that Christ descended into hell. The, the Apostles' Creed in the original Latin says descended ad inferna, which referred, no, inferna there refers to the place of the dead, not to hell. So Christ's descent, spoken of here, is Christ's descent into the grave. Christ went into the grave, into the place of the dead, for three days and three nights. And so the picture here is of, of Christ reigning now. He was, he was leaving when he ascended, back to the Father's right hand, but he did not leave us empty-handed. He left his spirit as the agent of his work in the church. It started on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit filled the first disciples, we'll talk about this when we get to Acts in a few weeks, empowering them for ministry. It started at Pentecost, but it has continued to this day. Christ is continuing to build his church through the work of his Holy Spirit. Tom read Matthew 16 earlier for us. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We'll talk about, about what that rock is more next week. But the picture here is, is of the advance of the church, an assault on the gates of hell. It's not that the church is on the defensive. The church is on the offensive, attacking the very gates of hell. And the gates of hell are the ones that are going to come down. The church is going to be victorious through the victory of Christ Jesus. So now as we begin to wrap up here, we understand that the, the, the foundation here then has been laid. The foundation, the understanding of, of what the gifts are for, and, and we'll begin to understand what the gifts are. But again, the gifts are not your gifts. They're Christ's gifts to the church as Christ builds his church. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the, the five foundational gifts that Christ gives to the church from Ephesians 4.11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But before we close here, I, I, I want to remind you again, as, as we're talking about here, to focus on the fruit of the Spirit in your life before you begin to focus on the gifts of the Spirit in your life. You need to grow in your ability to maintain the church before you can be used by God to effectively build the church. But again, if, if you are not characterized by these things, then then. You have, you have work to do. We all have work to do. We all need to seek to continually grow in these things. Now you can say, I've arrived. I've got it now. We need to continue to strive in these things. Again, prayer, praying confident in the Spirit's work. Studying God's Word. Looking to understand what the fruit is and how we can grow in it. But if you are not willing, if you're not willing to, to do that hard work, if you're not willing to put in some, some holy sweat, don't think that the Holy Spirit will use you to help build the church. 
Christ sent the Holy Spirit to empower his people with gifts to help the church to build itself up in love. You need the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, evident through the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Just the other day, I was, I was preparing to, to mow the lawn, and uh, um, we had no gas, so I went and, and paid a lot for gas, but, uh, but, but came back and, and tried to, to start the lawnmower. And, uh, and I was pulling in it. It just wasn't doing anything. And I'm thinking, this is, this is a Honda motor. This thing should be starting right away. Actually, Eric gave us that lawnmower. It's great. Even after winter, one, usually one pull, it's, it's starting, even after the whole winter. And, uh, as, as, and then meanwhile, the, the neighbor walks up, and I'm, I'm chatting with him trying to start this lawnmower. I was like, it's not starting. And so I, I said, I'm going to try it the, the redneck way. So I, I took off the, the filter and put a bit of gas in the carburetor and pulled, and it started and ran for like two seconds and then died again. Oh, my God. Tried it again. And it's like maybe the switch was off and, uh, the, for the gas line. And I, so I, no, it wasn't. It was, it was on and just couldn't get things started. And then, and then our neighbor Angelo came by with his, with his, with his, with his he's a landscaper, and he parks his, his trucks back here. And I said, I can't get this lawnmower to start. And so we're, he's looking, I'm pulling and trying different things. It's not starting. And he's like, is there gas in that mower? I'm like, oh. I went and got the gas, had the jerry can sitting right there, but didn't put the gas in the lawnmower. I said, well, that's embarrassing. I said, don't tell anybody. Come and tell my church on Sunday. I figured if this, if this is, if, 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 if I survive, and even if it's embarrassing, it'll make for a good sermon illustration. But I wonder, are we, are we like that? Are we, are we like trying to start the lawnmower without putting the gas in it? You see where I'm going with this? The, the Holy Spirit is the gas that makes the lawnmower go. If you're just trying, you can, you can pull all day. That thing is never going to go. It's never going to do its job. If you are trying to do what you're trying to do without the power of the Holy Spirit, it will do nothing good. You just embarrass yourself like me on the side of the road. It's the Holy Spirit making you go. Is the Holy Spirit operating in your life? Is, is, the, is the growth of the fruit of the, of the Holy Spirit evident in your life? So people could say, I see the difference that the Holy Spirit is making in your life. I can see that you're born again. I can see that, that, that you have Christ as your Lord and Savior. That you've been given a new heart and that you're living in accordance with that. That you're growing in areas where I've seen that you used to be weak. And then God gets the glory. And then God begins to use you. Again, not perfect people. There are no perfect people. He begins to use you as one who has been filled with the Holy Spirit, gifted by the Holy Spirit to accomplish Christ's work for the church so that the church will build itself up in love. So if you are here as part of this church so that God will use you in this church to help you build this church up in love. Let's pray together. Triune God, we wonder at the mystery of the Trinity. You think of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit accomplishing one goal, one God with one purpose for the glory of the name of God as we see this through the advance of the kingdom and through the building of the church. 
We praise you, Lord, for your omniscience, for your, your supreme wisdom in putting this church together according to your sovereign plan, in, in calling people from, from diverse backgrounds, and even with diverse gifts, Lord, to work together for the glory of your name. Help us, I pray, all of us. Lord, as those who have received your Holy Spirit, to bear fruit in accordance with the Holy Spirit so that we can use the gifts of the Holy Spirit for the advance of your kingdom and for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.